The following message is brought to you by MacArthur Boulevard Baptist Church. We are many stories made one family by one gospel. If you would like to connect with us, please check out our website at MacArthurBoulevard.org. The book of Revelation chapter 2, uh, verses 8 through 11 is where you can turn to in your Bibles. Revelation 2, verses 8 through 11. Sometimes this life feels like you're in the midst of a fierce boxing match. Can I get a witness? And there are times in life, man, where you're moving and you're strong and you feel like you're delivering blows, those right jabs, those left hooks. And then there are times in life where it feels like you're bleeding out of both eyes. And you can't, you can't distinguish between which way is up and which way is down, and you're stumbling around the ring about to fall flat on your face. Whether it's a health crisis or uh, some type of financial crisis or, or conflict with, with people or some sort of spiritual conflict, some, sometimes it feels like we're a Vander Holyfield in the ring. And the world is Mike Tyson, and it's biting our ear off. <laughs> and when you're in a boxing match, and that bell rings, and you get to go back over into your corner, it's really important that you have the right coach in your corner. Someone who can, who can speak words of courage into your life before you go back out for another three minutes of the fight. You need a coach in your corner who understands the pain that you're going through, who understands the extreme fatigue and dizziness, not just theoretically, but understands it experientially because he's someone who has been in a fight himself. You need someone in your corner who not only has experienced a fight, but who has demonstrated that he can overcome the pain and has proven victorious in a fight. He's actually won some fights along the way. If you got a coach in your corner in a boxing match, and man, this guy's never been in a fight, or maybe he's been in a fight, but he ain't ever won a fight, it's going to be really hard for you when you're beaten and bruised over there for those 30 seconds to be able to receive that guy's words of courage that he's trying to speak into you. And so this morning, we look at the letter that Jesus sent to the church there in Smyrna. Now, this church in Smyrna seemed, seemed small and insignificant. Nothing particularly noteworthy about this church, other than the fact that it's one of only two churches of the seven who received no rebuke from Jesus at all. And it's not coincidental that this church that is, that is proven to be so pure in their love and devotion is also the church that is facing incredible suffering and persecution there in the city. These Christians in Smyrna are in the fight of their lives. And in this letter, 
Jesus is speaking words of courage into his suffering church. And we're going to see that this, this is the same message that this letter has for us today. The message for us today is that Jesus speaks words of courage into the hearts and to the souls and to the lives of his suffering people. That when you're suffering, that when you're afflicted and wounded by this world, Jesus will speak these words of courage into your life. Now the letter begins, as all of them do, with Jesus introducing himself. Remember, utilizing one of the descriptors from chapter 1. And each of those descriptors corresponds to the problem that the church is facing. Now, in this introduction to the church in Smyrna, Jesus demonstrates that he is uniquely qualified to speak these words of courage into this suffering church. I want you to look at what he says. This is verse 8. This is the introduction. He says, write to the church or to the angel of the church in Smyrna. Thus says the first and the last, the one who is dead and then came to life. And so he introduces himself first as the first and the last. Remember, this is the same way God is described. Chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus is the sovereign and eternal God. And he describes himself as the one who was dead and then came to life. Which means that this is someone who has been in this fight himself. He too has suffered in this world. Even to the point of death he has suffered. And not only has he been in this fight, but he has demonstrated that he is able to overcome and triumph victoriously in the fight, overcome suffering, overcome death. He's proven himself victorious. He was dead, but then he came back to life. And so this Jesus is uniquely qualified to speak words of courage into the hearts of those who suffer. Okay, guys, this church was hurting, and they were dizzy, and they were stumbling, and they were confused, and maybe, maybe that's exactly where you find yourself today. Man, you're out there in this world, in this life, and you're hurting, and you're confused, and it feels like you're stumbling all over the ring, and if that's where you're at, the goal of this letter is for the risen Christ to put courage into your hearts, to speak these words of courage into the souls of his suffering people. I want you to hear what he says to a suffering church. The first thing he says is this. He says, I see you differently than how the world sees you. I see you differently than how the world sees you. This is verse 9. Look at verse 9. He says, I know your affliction and poverty, <laughs> but you are rich. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Okay, so Jesus begins by saying, listen, I know I am aware of your affliction, and specifically he mentions the affliction of poverty and slander. 
Smyrna was a small but generally wealthy city. Think of Smyrna kind of like South Lake in DFW. Not the largest community, but a generally wealthy community. And yet, despite the wealth of the city, the Christians in Smyrna mostly lived, it says, in poverty, very likely because of their faith in Christ. So in the city of Smyrna, it was required that you pay tribute to Caesar and declare Caesar as Lord, not just as master, as a governing ruler, but as God. You had to worship him as God. Now, refusing to do so made it almost impossible to accumulate any type of income or develop any type of wealth within the city, okay? So before any physical hostility came against these Christians, at least here in Smyrna, the persecution began in this city through uh, economic per persecution, okay? These Christians lived in poverty with no real opportunity to pull themselves out of poverty lest they compromise in their devotion to Christ as Lord alone. Now on top of that, we also know that the, the Jews in Smyrna had worked out a special deal with the Romans so that they didn't have to do what everybody else had to do and worship Caesar as God. Now, they still had to pay a tribute to Caesar, but they were exempt and therefore protected being monotheists themselves. We also know that these same Jews in Smyrna had begun to separate themselves from the Christians, right? Uh, they're not a part of us. And because they wanted to maintain a, a good, positive relationship with Rome, they were quick to act as informants for Rome, telling the Roman authorities who the Christians were and where they worshipped and making it very clear that they are not a part of us and therefore they should not enjoy this privilege of being exempt from worshipping Caesar as a, a god. So this was some of the slander that was coming against the church. Now on top of that we know that the earliest Christians were accused of all kinds of things. They were accused of being cannibals because of misunderstandings around their, their views of the Lord's Supper. They were accused of uh, being incest because of misunderstandings around the vernacular they use, referring to one another as, as brother and sisters. All of this is the slander that Jesus is talking about here in verse 9. Okay, so... From the perspective of the world, these Christians were poor and they were malicious outsiders. Okay, the, the Jews had stripped them of their status as true Jews. And the Rome, Roman authorities considered them to be a threat because they refused to worship Caesar. This is how the world saw them. But then... In this letter, Jesus looks at these Christians and he says, guys, listen, I see you differently. I see you differently than how the world sees you. Okay, they see you as poor. But in reality, you are rich. You are the child of the God who literally owns everything. Yours is an inheritance 
that far surpasses the value of anything that is found in this life. I see you differently than how they see you. You're not poor. You are rich. And while they, he says, while they see you as malicious outsiders who have no share with God's people, I see you as my special people, chosen, a people who I love dearly. In fact, Jesus says these slanderers who call themselves Jews are not even a part of the true Israel because the true Israel is defined not by who your biological father or forefathers are, but your relationship to the heavenly father. In fact, they're the ones that are wrongly labeled as God's people because they've rejected the Christ. You don't need to worry about being kicked out of their synagogue because, he says, theirs is a synagogue of Satan. Their slander against you corresponds to their true ruler, the great slanderer himself. Okay, these are the first words of courage that Jesus speaks into his suffering church. I don't see you. The way that the world sees you. Listen, their perception is not your reality. And so the question we have to ask ourselves is, man, do we see ourselves? <laughs> do we see other people? Do we see this world the way Jesus sees them? Which perception do we operate by? I want you to just consider the two matters that are mentioned here in verse 9, which are wealth and status. Let's start with wealth. Those of you who perhaps are of more humble means, do you see yourself truly as rich in Christ? Is your heart content with the inheritance that is yours in the kingdom of God. Those who, are of, who have greater means. Do you consider yourself rich? Is your heart content because of the amount of money that you have in the bank? Or because of who you have in Christ? I you to consider if tomorrow you were to wake up and lose everything that you had, your wealth, your savings, your pension, retirement, everything, gone. Wealthy to poverty, overnight. Could you still consider yourself as rich because of the kingdom of God? Another way to think about this. Do you have any meaningful relationships with people that are not of the same economic class as you? If not, it's worth asking, am I seeing people the same way Jesus sees people? Or am I seeing people according to the economy of this world? Okay, this isn't, this isn't a matter of being rich or poor. It's a matter of which economy is most important to us, the economy of the world or the economy of the kingdom. 
Jesus sees differently. <laughs> Same questions could be asked of the matter of status. What's most important to you? The status other people give you in this world or the status that Jesus has given you in the kingdom? Listen, when you're suffering because of material poverty or because people just don't like you, <laughs> you're not popular, you're, you're kind of an outcast, people think you're weird or ignorant or malicious, like when you're suffering like this, you need to hear these words from Jesus that are intended to put courage into your heart. When he looks at you in a world that has rejected you and perhaps even sees you as poor and he says, I don't see you like that. I see you differently than how the world sees you. Their perception is not your reality. Church, I want, I want, my challenge is I want you to see yourself. I want you to see other people. I want you to see this world the way Jesus sees. And then, and then we will have the courage to endure the suffering and the afflictions of this life. These first words of courage that Jesus speaks into his church but then he speaks some additional words of courage into his suffering church. First, he says, I see you differently than the way the world sees you. But then he says this next. He looks at these suffering Christians and he says, listen, I have your adversary under my control. I have your adversary under my control. This is the first half of verse 10. He says, don't be afraid of what you are about to suffer. Look, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison to test you, and you will experience affliction for 10 days. Okay, Jesus warns them what has been up to this point, primarily an economic persecution, is about to pivot and become an overtly hostile persecution. Your suffering is about to get worse. Because of your refusal to worship Caesar as God, some of you are going to be thrown into prison. Some of you will even die. And then he reveals the true adversary behind their affliction. He says, look at it. The devil is about to throw some of you into prison. In other words, your struggle, understand, isn't primarily or ultimately against flesh and blood. The hostility that's coming against the church is going to be motivated by demonic spirits. Now, of course... This isn't to say that every single trial or affliction that we face in life is always demonically instigated. It is to say that some affliction at its root is a part of the spiritual war that we are in. That we have a very real spiritual adversary. Now, you might read the first half of verse 10 and think to yourself, man, how, how's that supposed to be encouraging? <laughs> like how... How is that supposed to put courage into my heart? Jesus basically says, listen, it's not going to get better. It's only going to get worse that all, all hell is about to come after you. Thanks, Jesus, right? It's encouraging because in that same verse, Jesus makes it crystal clear that he has the adversary and he has their affliction that's coming against them under his control. Listen to me. 
Our adversary is on a leash held by Jesus. Jesus is in control in two ways, according to verse 10. Both the purpose and the duration of their suffering. First, the purpose. Look at it. Jesus says the devil is about to throw some of you into prison. Why? To test you. Okay, this testing here is the testing of our faith that results in refinement and strengthening. Strengthening our faith. Refining our faith. Now, guys, I don't think that was the devil's purpose and bringing affliction against the church, that the church would just grow to love Jesus more and that their faith would be refined in him. That wasn't the devil's purpose in the affliction. Jesus is saying that while the enemy intends to destroy you by instigating hostility and affliction against you, I intend to use his affliction to test, to refine, and to strengthen your faith. Yes, I have allowed him to bring some affliction into your life, but I'm going to use that affliction, that suffering for my own good purposes. He's under my control. And it's not just the purpose of the suffering. Jesus also controls the the duration of our suffering. So he says again, he says, and you will experience affliction for 10 days. That's probably not referring to a literal 10 days. Just make it this week and a half. Remember, the numbers in Revelation are almost always symbolic, okay? The point here is to convey that their suffering is going to be limited and relatively short. The number 10 conveys a relatively brief and limited period of time when compared to the other numbers that are used in Revelation, like, for example, a thousand years. It's not going to be a thousand years. It's not even going to be three and a half years. It's going to be... 10 days. It's going to be limited and relatively brief. And why is it going to be limited? Because while Jesus is going to allow the enemy to stir up persecution in Smyrna, his time will be limited. Now, if it were up to Satan, the affliction would go on much longer than this proverbial 10 days. But Jesus has the adversary under his control. He said, I'm going to let him bark for just a little while, and I'm going to yank him back because he's under my control. Guys, when we we experience affliction and trials and suffering at the hands of other people, whether it's just generally evil people in this world or in our family or even with the case with Smyrna, hostile government, What gives us the courage to endure that affliction and that suffering so that we don't compromise and we don't deny Jesus, but we remain faithful. What gives us that courage is knowing that even our adversary, even our affliction is under Jesus' control. Yes, we have an enemy that's seeking to devour us, but he's on a leash. And Jesus will use what The adversary intends for evil and destruction. Jesus will use it to test and refine your faith and strengthen godliness within you. He determines the purpose of your affliction. And he determines the the, the, the length, the duration. When the time is right, Jesus will bring the affliction to an end. Understand that. 
even if that end is going home to be with him in heaven. That every affliction in your life, whether it's a matter of health, a financial crisis, a conflict with, with, with people, or whatever else, every affliction in your life has an expiration date. It will come to an end, and Jesus is the one who sets the date. And Jesus is good, and he's wise, and he knows you, and he knows what, he's, what you're going through. Okay, these Christians in, in Smyrna were marginalized outcasts. They were the least powerful, the poorest people in town. And Jesus looks at them, and he says, don't be afraid. I have this entire situation, including your adversary, under my control. And those words ought to put courage into our hearts as we suffer. Right, Jesus says, I see you differently than the way the world sees you. He says, I have your adversary under my control. And then he speaks one final word of, of courage into the hearts of these, these Christians. Right? The final thing he says is this. He says, I will reward you with eternal life. I will reward you with eternal life. And this is the latter half of verse 10 and verse 11 together. Pick up with me in the middle of verse 10. It says, be faithful to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will never be harmed by the second death. Okay, now listen. The last sentence in verse 11 communicates the same idea as the last sentence of verse 10. The promise that's given at the end of verse 10 is this gift of the crown of life. Now, this is not very likely not referring to a king's crown. That would have been the word didema. Instead, he uses the word stephanos, which is the word that refers to the wreath that was awarded to the victor at the games. And life is defining what the crown is, what the reward is. The reward is eternal life. Now, that same promise is given at the end of verse 11, but stated a different way. There it says that they're not going to be harmed by the second death. Now, according to Revelation 20:14, the second death refers to eternal death, spiritual separation from God. In a very real place called Gehenna, called hell. Okay, so get this. The promise is not that they're going to avoid tribulation. The, the promise is not that they're not going to have to suffer in this life. The promise is not even that they won't die physically because of their faith in Christ. That's not the promise. The promise is... 
they'll never experience the second death, that they are going to be awarded eternal life. And how does it say that they receive that gift of eternal life? Well, just like the promise at the end of verses 10 and 11 were stated in different ways referring to the same promise, similarly, he says two things in a different way at the beginning of verses 10 and 11. Okay, so follow me. The beginning of verse 11 says that this promise is for the one who conquers. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean to be a conqueror? Well, the beginning of verse 10 clarifies what it means. Beginning of verse 10 says, or the middle of verse 10, I should say, it says, be faithful to the point of death. The promise of eternal life is for those who persevere through the affliction and through the tribulation and trials in such a way that they, that they do not deny Christ, that their faith in Christ endures through affliction to the very end, even to the point of death. To those is awarded the crown of life. Guys, this is the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints, which is a doctrine that says that it is only those whose faith perseveres and endures to the end that will finally be saved in the end. It is an important and biblical doctrine, and it does not contradict another important biblical doctrine of the preservation of the saints that says that God will most certainly preserve the faith of his true children to the end. End, that the good shepherd will not lose any of the sheep that the Father has given him, that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. Okay, both doctrines are taught in the Bible and they complement one another. But it's perseverance that's being emphasized here in this letter that those who persevere to the end will receive the crown of life. And guys, this helps us to understand what it means to be a conqueror, to be one who conquers. Being a conqueror doesn't mean that you'll be physically healed every time. It doesn't mean that you won't suffer the first death. It doesn't mean that you're going to avoid suffering at all. Neither does being a conqueror mean that you won't sin throughout life, that you won't grow weak and weary along the way. Being a conqueror does not mean that you won't at times stumble all over yourself along the way. No, being a conqueror means that as you face suffering in this world, you continue to trust Jesus. And when you get to the end of your life, yes, you will have made plenty of mistakes along the way. But you arrive at death trusting Jesus. This is what it means to be victorious. This is what it means to be a conqueror. It's not always glamorous. It's I persevere through this life. 
and I come to the end, and I still trust Jesus. You're a conqueror. You're a conqueror. Regardless of what it looked like, you're a conqueror. But guys, listen, the only way to receive eternal life, the only way to avoid the second death of eternal separation from God is to experience, listen, to experience a second birth. And God has to come into your life and he has to change your heart and forgive your sins. And it, guys, listen, it doesn't, it doesn't matter how, how frequently you go to church or how many times you've been baptized or how frequently you take the Lord's Supper or how much money you've given to charity or how many good works you've done. When it comes to the second death, none of that ultimately matters if you don't receive by faith the gift of salvation yielding your life to jesus if god has not come into your life and given you a second birth then you will be harmed by the second death and so the call for you if that's where you're at is to give your life to jesus today Yield your life to Jesus. Give your life to him. God, I trust you. I'm going to stop relying on myself and I give you the reins of my life. You give your life to Jesus and Jesus will give life to you. And church, when you suffer and when you face affliction in this life, I want you to hear these words of Jesus. He looks at you in your suffering. He says, keep believing. I know it's hard. Just keep trusting, keep believing, and I will reward you with life. Your faith will not have been in vain. Even if you die because of your faith, it will not have been in vain. No matter what happens to you in this life, you have the reward of eternal life waiting for you. You see, when a Christian experiences physical death, <laughs> it's, just a, it's just a pivot. It's just a transition into life and eternal life. And that's why Jesus says, don't fear those who can kill the body but can't destroy the soul. What can people do to you? Reject you? Kill you? What can the demonic realm do to you now that Jesus has conquered death? This should put courage into our hearts. As those who suffer when Jesus looks at us and he says, listen, I don't care what they do to you, finish the race, and I will reward you with eternal life. Okay, church, and so I ask, are you suffering today? Do you face affliction in your life today? If, you're, if, if not... You will, okay? Because our blessed hope as God's people is not that we won't suffer in this life. Now, just like the church, the Christians in Smyrna, we will suffer, and when we do, and if you are suffering today, I want you to understand that Jesus is uniquely qualified as you stumble over into the corner to speak words of courage into your heart. Because he suffered too. And he's proven that he can overcome it. Even to the point of death. He's victorious. 
And guys, he speaks these same words of courage that he spoke into the hearts of the Christians in Smyrna. He speaks these same words of courage into his church, into his people today who suffer. I want you to allow these words of the risen Christ to wash over your heart. When he looks at you and he says, I see you differently. I see you differently than the way the world does. Their perception, not your reality. I have your adversary under my control. I will determine the purpose, the duration of affliction. And I will give you, I will award you with eternal life. Your faith in, hear these words, your faith in Jesus, no matter what happens in this life, will not have been in vain. Receive these words of courage. Believe on these words of courage from the risen Christ. Allow Jesus to fill your heart with courage today.